Uh, we'll get started. Uh, just as a reminder, this will be our last theological equipping of the, uh, of the semester. We'll start up again in January. We'll talk about this in the announcements and the services, but just uh, so that we're all reminded, we take a break every July and December from any of our extracurricular activities, including theological equipping, just as an opportunity for us to rest, engage our families, uh, take vacations, any of those sorts of things. So uh, again, this will be our last one this semester, so don't show up at 9 a.m. next week or you'll be just all alone in this room. And, uh, and so feel free to do that if you want to just come and pray. Let's, uh, let's take a few moments, and so if you're not sitting around somebody, if you could, kind of get around somebody, because I want to, to just open up with a couple of moments of discussion, and, uh, and then we're going to uh, we're gonna pray after that. And, uh, and so get around somebody, and I want you to just spend a couple of minutes uh, thinking about this question. How many miracles, how many miracles of Scripture can you name? How many miracles of Scripture can you name? Feel free to look in your Bibles, feel free to use your... Uh, app on your phone or whatever you might want uh, to do, but how many miracles of Scripture can you name? You have uh, about two minutes or so. Go. All right, that was just to get the mind going a little bit. We'll, uh, we'll come back to, uh, to that. We'll name a few here in a little bit. Uh, we're talking about, this semester we've been talking about the doctrine of God. All right, Next semester we'll talk about uh, anthropology, that is the doctrine of man. We'll talk about sin. We'll talk about uh, the beginnings of uh, redemption. And, uh, but this semester, we've been talking about doctrine of God. We've talked about the nature of God in regards to His uh, Trinitarianism. Uh, we've talked about uh, the doctrine of Christ uh, and the importance of maintaining that He is fully God and fully human and how if you begin to let go of either one of those, then your entire thread uh, of your understanding of the gospel unravels and your understanding of personal salvation is going to unravel. We talked about the Holy Spirit last week and uh, Zach talked about pneumatology, that is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, who He is and what He does. And this week we want to end by kind of talking about this uh, topic of miracles. What are miracles? Miracles are these things that uh, it's kind of a word that's just thrown about uh, randomly, right? And so when someone uh, is healed of cancer, we say that's a miracle. When the U.S. beats uh, Russia in, uh, in uh, Olympic hockey, we call that a miracle. When you see the image of Mary on a piece of toast, we call that uh, a miracle. Whenever you find a good parking spot in Christmas, that's a miracle, right? Obviously. Uh, I, we have a, a, a buddy, uh, a frenemy, if you will, and, uh, and he made this, this video one time uh, for his Twitter feed. And it was about five minutes, him just talking about the miracles of sunsets. And it was the most embarrassing thing. I'm watching it as his friend, and I'm embarrassed for him because he's making this entire thing about how it's this, this miracle, right? So it's, it's a word that we use all the time, uh, and, and, uh, and, and yet at the same time, it's a word that I think is uh, kind of complex. And so I want to dive into that uh, today and talk about what are miracles. The word miracle comes from uh, a Latin word, miraculum. Uh, which is actually uh, the same sort of underlying word, mirari, uh, is a Latin term which means to, to gaze at or to marvel at. It's actually the word that we get the word mirror from. Mirror and miracle actually have the same root word, which is why when Tim looks into a mirror, he says, it's a miracle. Every time, right? So miracle, it's something that you marvel at, something that you gaze at, something you experience wonder at, you're astounded by. That's what a miracle is. Defining it, though, can be tricky Defining it can be tricky. I think it's one of those things that you might say, I don't know that I can define it, but I can certainly identify it. I know it when I see it. 
And yet at the same time, I would say that probably there's a good opportunity for us to recognize that you might not recognize uh, whenever you see it. Even identifying a miracle can be difficult uh, biblically. Is it a miracle, for instance, when you're healed of, ca- healed of cancer? Is that necessarily a miracle? Or does God simply work through the common means and the common grace of medicine? Like, would that necessarily be a miracle? Or uh, is it just simply something that God is doing in a normal, typical way as He has wired the, the universe uh, to work? Is it a miracle when God answers prayer? Or is that something that we should just expect? Is that just common? Is that just normal? Is that just typical? And so even identifying what a miracle can be uh, is difficult, much less uh, defining it. Whenever we look at various uh, definitions uh, that theologians might come up with, I think a lot of times those definitions kind of leave us wanting, leave us wanting something more. We find them to be somewhat insufficient or deficient. When I was looking at uh, definitions of miracles, one of the things that I kept running across is this phrase, that it is a direct intervention of God in the world, that a miracle involves this direct intervention of God in the world. Now think about that for a second, and think about why that might be problematic for you and me, to say that a miracle is a direct intervention of God in the world. What is that implying? That God is not regularly intervening in the world, right? That's more deistic. That's not Christian. Uh, the Christian view, we've, we've talked uh, before about providence. The Christian view of God and His activities within the world is this view of providence, that God is always involved in creation. He's directly involved in creation. And so if a miracle is simply a direct intervention of God in the world, then absolutely everything is a miracle, including a sunset, including whenever you find a parking spot, including whenever U.S. beats Russia or whatever it might be. All of these things would be miracles because we see in the Bible like the book of Job, and, uh, and God is responding to Job's questions and laments, uh, and, uh, and God responds and says, I'm the one who gives the mountain goats their food. I'm the one that causes the grass to grow. Psalm 104, 14, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth. Matthew 5, 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Think of all the processes that are involved in rain. And yet at the same time, although there are these natural processes, those natural processes biblically are maintained by God. They're superintended by God. God is directly involved in all of these processes. It says that God is the one who sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Uh, I love this quote by G.K. Chesterton um, where uh, he's speaking of just the monotony of natural law and how God actually delights in doing the same thing over and over again. He writes, Children always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately but has never gotten tired of making them. So this idea that God is involved intricately in the world. So we can't just simply say that a miracle is a direct intervention of God in the world without implying that He's not normally intervening in the world. Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance, that's Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And listen to this, and He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word 
of his power. I found this quote by D.A. Carson to be really uh, good to kind of set the scene for us as we understand miracles aren't just this direct intervention of God in the world because God is always directly intervening in the world. D.A. Carson says, the sad truth is that science has taught many of us to, to adopt some version of the God in the gaps theory. In this view, God sets everything in motion and allows it to chug along in line with the laws that he himself sets in place. But every once in a while, God intervenes. He actually does something. We call that a miracle. Biblically speaking, of course, this is nonsense. I would never deny that God has created an ordered universe, but the biblical view of God's sovereignty is that even now, at every second, He sustains that universe. Indeed, He now mediates every scrap of the infinite reaches of His sovereignty through the Son, who even now is sustaining all things by His powerful Word. That's the Hebrews passage that we just read. A miracle is not an instance of God doing something for a change. It is an instance of God doing something out of the ordinary. That God normally operates the universe consistently makes science possible. That he does not always do so ought to keep science humble. Above, above all, this view of God's sovereignty means that he, we should draw comfort and faith even by observing the world around us as Jesus did. Again, so it's not just this direct intervention of God in the world because God is always directly intervening within the world. He himself is the one who sustains it in his providence. So we can't say... Uh, that it is a direct intervention of God in the world. Another uh, definition that we might come across that I don't think is going to be helpful would be God working in the world without using means to bring about the results He wishes. I forget where I got that definition, but God working in the world, even uh, God working in the world without using means to bring about the results He wishes. What's wrong with that? Yeah, sometimes he uses uh, means to accomplish things. And so whenever he is, for instance, turning water into wine, what means is he using? Well, water, right? He's using water. He's not just simply producing wine out of nothing. He's using water to turn into wine. What about multiplying loaves and fish? He's using loaves and fish in order to do it. Whenever he parts the Red Sea, how does he part the Red Sea? What does the author of Exodus say? He sends a strong wind, right? He uses this means to accomplish something, which is why the Westminster Catechism says, God, in His ordinary providence, makes use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at His pleasure. And so we can't say that a miracle is necessarily something God does without means, because oftentimes He does things that are miraculous using means. So that's not a, a great definition either. Or a lot of definitions want to contrast a miracle with something in natural law, uh, an event that's kind of impossible to explain from natural causes. So if you're reading uh, the philosopher David Hume, uh, who is an 18th century philosopher, he says that uh, a miracle is a violation of natural law. Or uh, the Christian apologist uh, Norman Geisler, he says that, uh, uh, that a miracle is an interruption of it. Or C.S. Lewis said that a miracle is an interference with natural law. But what is natural law? How do we define natural law? Well, if we say that it's the ultimate processes that govern the world, what would you say is the ultimate process that governs the world? God Himself, right? And so a miracle uh, would not be something that is contrary to natural law because God Himself is the one who sets in place natural law. Um, and, uh, and so it's also just not this idea that it's just the suspension of the natural order. That's what a lot of people think. It's God some, somehow is kind of pressing pause on the natural order in fact, what we find oftentimes is what God is doing in a miracle is He's actually rewinding, uh, rewinding things back to a pre-fallen condition. 
So think about most of the miracles in Scripture. Think about raising of the dead. The dead is a, death is a result of the fall, right? When Jesus raises someone dead from the dead, what is he doing? He's pressing rewind. He's going back to a pre-fallen state. What happens whenever Jesus heals somebody? Well, disease and disorder of any kind are results of the fall. What's happening? God is, in in essence, he's pressing rewind, getting us back to a uh, pre-fallen condition. So it's not a suspension of the natural order. It's actually kind of a reorientation, kind of a renewal of the original natural order. He's not pressing pause. He's actually rewinding to something or fast-forwarding to something uh, in, uh, in the future. And, uh, and so uh, it's not just uh, those things. What oftentimes happens, though, is that, uh, that we have adopted this sort of closed view of the world of naturalism, right? The view of naturalism, which is that nothing that is outside of the natural world uh, is a part of the natural uh, world. And, uh, and so we have this sort of view uh, that, uh, you know, why are miracles impossible? If, if you're a naturalist, if you're an uh, agnostic or an atheist that kind of operates from this real closed-loop system of, uh, of science, you would say uh, that miracles are possible because nothing exists outside the natural world. And how do we know if nothing exists outside the natural world? Because it did. Because if it did, it would be a miracle, and we know that those don't happen. There's some sort of logical fallacy that exists uh, in there. It reminds me, there's this YouTube video. It's a uh, it's called Lutheran Satire. Uh, some of you, I think the youth have seen it uh, before, but there uh, is this, this funny YouTube uh, channel, and, uh, and the guy just makes fun of uh, secularism. And uh, one of the things that he does is he's talking, he has this character that's talking to uh, a, uh, an atheist uh, philosopher, and, uh, and the atheist philosopher is arguing, nobody rises from the dead, that's impossible. And, uh, and so the, uh, the monk who's having a dialogue with him responds, yes, except for that one time Jesus did, and that was pretty awesome. And his whole point is you can't just simply say no one rises from the dead. How do we know that? Because no one's ever risen from the dead if you're just discounting the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. In other words, what naturalism does is it has this closed system, and it says anything that doesn't fit within these criteria, we're going to dismiss. Anything that doesn't fit within uh, this closed system, we're going to just ignore uh, and, uh, and so I think oftentimes this is why you have this sort of idea that early Christians or Jews or whatever are just kind of country bumpkins, right? They recorded all of these things uh, that uh, we know can't happen. People don't really rise from the dead. People don't really get healed if they're lame or they're blind uh, or whatever it might be. Axe heads really don't float. Donkeys really don't talk. The sun really doesn't go backwards. All of these sorts of things. But we think those are impossible, and, uh, and so anybody who would have believed that, anybody who would have written those down, uh, they're just kind of backwoods. They're kind of slow. Uh, and, uh, and so that's kind of the idea uh, that we have of them. But the whole point of them recording these things is that they knew that these weren't regular. They knew that they weren't typical. How interesting would the Bible be if the prophets are always just simply saying, I'm going to show you a sign. The sun's going to rise tomorrow and the sun's going to set tomorrow. Is that a very good sign? No, absolutely not. And so they're, the only reason they're recording this is because they recognize that this is something that is unique, something that is different, something that is not common, something that is not typical. In fact, it's something that couldn't happen apart from some sort of divine explanation. And, uh, and so as we try to come up with uh, a definition of miracles, I think it's really helpful and important for us to remember that no matter how we define a miracle, uh, we must not think that a miracle is, means that a typically absent God 
is now suddenly present. That's not an option for us. That's deism. That's not Christianity. Christianity is the idea that, uh, that God is always present among us, that He's not typically absent. He's typically present, but sometimes He manifests His presence in a way that is unique. Sometimes He manifests His presence in a way that is different, that is atypical, and that's what a miracle is. So a better definition, I think, of a miracle, you might uh, use a definition by John Frame. He says uh, that it's an extraordinary manifestation of God's covenant lordship. But a, a little simpler, uh, easier one, I think, is by D. A. Uh, or, or sorry, Wayne Grudem, who says a miracle is a less common kind of God's activity in which He arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to Himself. It's a less common kind of God's activity in which He arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to Himself. So he begins with this idea it's less common or extraordinary. It's unusual, right? God is usually working in the world, but this is an unusual aspect of God's working. This is an unusual type of God's working uh, within the world. So unusual, in fact, as to be seemingly impossible except for the fact that God is the one who is doing it. Uh, Again, it's not a direct intervention of God in the world. God is always intervening in the world. So what are the more common? If this is a less common work of God, what are the more common ways that God God is working? That's what we uh, call providence, Uh, the the processes by which God has uh, ordered the universe in such a way as to function. That is God's common means of working in the world, but a miracle is a less common uh, means or an extraordinary means. And it's given for a particular purpose, to arouse awe and wonder and to bear witness. It arouses awe and wonder and bears witness. In other words, miracles are intended to be revelatory. Uh, They're a type of revelation uh, for us. Not the only revelatory thing that God does. God does a lot of things that are revelatory. He does creation. Creation itself is a revelation. The, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork, as Psalm 19 says. Scripture, obviously, is the ultimate revelation of God, the infallible uh, revelation of God, the inerrant revelation of God. So miracles are another form of revelation. They don't, uh, they, they don't, they're not a substitute for revelation, for instance. They're a supplement for it. They bear witness to Scripture. Uh, they are something that authenticates or validates, typically the prophetic word or the apostolic word uh, or Scripture itself. And so they bear witness. What are they bearing witness to? They're bearing witness to God's Word and uh, to His kingdom. Acts 14.3 says that uh, they remained a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the Word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So it bears witness to the Word of His grace. This is why we tend to see miracles. If you're reading the Bible, you don't just simply see uh, miracles in every single book of the Bible. You tend to see miracles that are centered around particular epochs, uh, epochs in uh, in biblical uh, redemptive history. You tend to see miracles uh, uh, that kind of are cluttered around certain individuals or certain times in uh, in redemptive history. So we see a lot of miracles in the time of Moses, right? But then you see not as many miracles in the time of uh, of David and Solomon. But then you see miracles that are kind of clustered around uh, some of the prophets, especially prophets like Elijah and Elisha. And then you kind of go a long time without seeing a whole lot of miracles, and then you see miracles clustered around Jesus. 
And then you see miracles clustered around his apostles. There tends to be these clustering of miracles around particular redemptive moments, redemptive uh, events within uh, history, and, uh, and they're kind of bearing witness to what God is doing in these particular times. And they're, they're bearing witness to the narrative of the Word of God. They're bearing witness to the storyline of Scripture, which is the message of the kingdom of God, the message of the king and his uh, restoration of his uh, kingdom. So they're testifying. In particular, I think they're testifying to a few things about the kingdom. They're testifying to his control, his authority, and his presence. The control, the authority, and the presence of the king. By the way, there, there are three main Greek words uh, that are kind of used to describe miracles, all right? Those three Greek words we might translate as signs, mighty acts, and wonders. Signs, mighty acts, and wonders. And, and, and in a way, I think these three Greek words kind of point to these three different elements of the kingdom that miracles are signifying. So, signs kind of point to God's authority, the king's authority. Mighty acts to his control and wonders to his presence. Signs point to his authority, mighty acts to his control, and wonders to his presence. So in control, God's control, you see that in the parting of the Red Sea. You see that God controls the aspects of nature. Uh, Jesus walking on water, that would be an aspect of his control. You also see authority. Mark chapter 2, Jesus heals a paralytic. And he heals a paralytic right after he's already proclaimed that he has authority for, to forgive sins. His authority over the body, his authority over uh, sin as well, and then also presence. A, a number of the miracles uh, are going to manifest or going to validate or verify the, uh, the legitimacy of the presence, that, that they are in the presence of the king. And so think of uh, Luke chapter 5. Uh, Peter is going to catch this huge load of fish. Anybody remember what his response is? He says, depart from me. Depart from me. I'm unholy. I'm unclean. I'm unworthy to be in your presence. So somehow this miracle is going to manifest the very presence of Yahweh among among them. So those are kind of uh, the aspects of what a miracle is bearing witness to. It's bearing witness to the validity of Scripture and the story of Scripture, which is the kingdom of God the control, the authority, the presence of the king, which is why you'll have things like Matthew 12, 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This work of casting out demons is an evidence, a verification that the kingdom of God has come. Luke 4, 18 through 21, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's what miracles are entailing. They're entailing this inbreaking of the kingdom, disarming of the authorities and the conflict, the obstacles to the kingdom. The obstacles to the, to the king's rightful rule over his creation. That's what a miracle is, uh, in essence. Again, it's not this pressing pause on the natural order. It's rewinding the natural order back to a pre-fallen condition or fast-forwarding it to a resurrected, glorified condition. Think about this. We've talked about the kingdom a lot in, 
not only our services, but in theological equipping. And everything we do, in essence, is birthed out of our understanding that the gospel is the message of the kingdom. What is the kingdom? We've talked about this before. Imagine a world without sin and any of its consequences. Imagine a world without sin and any of its consequences. That's what the kingdom entails. And that's what Jesus is doing, by and large, in his miracles. When he heals somebody, what's he doing? He's getting them back to a pre-fallen condition. When he raises someone from the dead, what's he doing? He's getting them back to a pre-fallen condition where there no longer is death. When he's casting out demons, what is he doing? He's assaulting the kingdom of Satan. In miracles, we see this inbreaking of the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus' miracles, they're dealing with things that are kingdom issues. Jesus' miracles are casting out demons, healing diseases, uh, ordering a disordered creation when he calms a storm and that kind of stuff, and then overcoming death itself. All of these are obstacles. All of these are enemies of the kingdom, and that's what Jesus is doing when he is uh, carrying out these miracles. He's bearing witness to the reality of the gospel of the kingdom of God. And there are a number of words, uh, again, uh, that we would translate as, uh, as miracles. Uh, but first, just a, a pop quiz. How many times in the ESV do you see the word miracle or miracles? Somebody just guess. Just throw something out. Seven? 34? It's in between those. 12. 12 is the answer, right? All right. So we tend to think miracles are this big part of probably, uh, you know, if you think of the number of things that you would say are miraculous, probably in the two minutes that I gave you to name miracles, some of you probably got much more than 12. But the word itself is not all that common uh, because, again, there are actually three different words uh, that are uh, typically translated or, or typically mean uh, the same idea as a, uh, as a miracle. And uh, and the English word miracle only responds or corresponds to one of those three uh, Greek words. And so there's actually three different ones, those signs, wonders, and then mighty acts. Mighty acts are often translated as, uh, as miracles, but signs and wonders are, are different words in, uh, in Greek. And so let me just read a few of these passages. Exodus 7.3, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, signs and wonders. Deuteronomy 6.22, And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. Acts 4.29-30, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus Acts 5.12, and many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Romans 15.18-19, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to, however you pronounce that word, uh, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Those are signs and wonders. And then you see this third edition, Mighty Acts, in, uh, in a, a few passages. Uh, Acts 2.22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. 2 Corinthians 12.12, 12, two more of these. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. 
Hebrews 2, 3 through 4, last one. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So the word there that's translated various miracles in Hebrews 2 is the same word that's often translated as mighty works uh, in other passages. And so this is the word that's typically translated either as mighty works or as miracles, but it's the same word uh, in Greek. It's the word dunamis. We talked about uh, it whenever we talked about uh, uh, fallacies, interpretive fallacies. Uh, and uh, we saw this is the word that we get uh, dynamite from, and we saw how language moves in a certain direction. There's a sense in which dynamite is like a miracle. It's powerful, but that doesn't mean that miracles are like dynamite. Whenever, uh, whenever Paul is writing 2 Corinthians, for instance, and he writes a dunamis, he's not thinking of some sort of massive explosion or TNT. Somebody with a French curled mustache right, going out and putting a, a load of dynamite on a train track or something like that. That's not what he's thinking of. Uh, but this is what a miracle is. It's this sign, it's this wonder, it's this mighty act. Any of these words, although, uh, although miracles are only translated in the English as mighty works, it really refers to any three of these, signs, wonders, and, uh, and mighty works. And so those are a number of the, uh, the passages that talk about all of these. And when we're talking about miracles, one of the things that's really essential for us to grasp is that God is the source and the glory of God is the goal. When it comes to miracles, God is the source of a miracle, and the glory of God is the goal. Exodus 15, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. In other words, you see these wonders, and you know it's God that's doing it, and the response is to glorify God for it. Psalm 136, 4, to him alone who does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 72, 18, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. And they're intended to demonstrate God's supremacy. That's why the glory of God is the goal. They're intended to demonstrate that God, that Yahweh, is supreme. So think about uh, Elijah versus the prophets of Baal, if you remember that story. You have the, the prophets of Baal and, uh, and they're trying to call down fire, and you have Elijah calling down fire, and Elijah wins, and what's the response? The nation rallies back to the ways of Yahweh, uh, and they put to death the prophets of Baal, and there is this uh, revival, this renewal, this restoration uh, within the country, uh, at least for a, a short period of time. It's this uh, uh, demonstration that Yahweh is supreme. Yahweh is superior uh, to Baal or to Baal. You have this same sort of conflict that plays out uh, with Moses versus Pharaoh and his magicians, where there is this conflict that plays out with uh, Pharaoh's magicians are trying to uh, copy the various miracles uh, that are being worked uh, through Moses. Does anybody remember how many of those miracles they were able to, uh, to copy, to mimic? It's just, just the first couple, right? They could mimic the snake. They could mimic the, the first two plagues. And then after that, they were just basically worthless. They couldn't do anything. They go to Pharaoh. They're actually uh, much more willing uh, to let the, 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 uh, the Israelites go than Pharaoh himself is because they realize in this moment our power is uh, inferior to the power of this God that Moses is, uh, is proclaiming. And, uh, and so this is why... Uh, the Lord says to Moses whenever yeah, he calls him to go, he says, 
The Lord said to him, what is that in your name? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. That they may, be, may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or, uh, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. So these signs that God gives are an evidence of his supremacy. Uh, they're evidence that he is among uh, his people and that he is supreme to the gods of the lands of Egypt or the gods of the lands of the Canaanites or whatever uh, it, uh, it might be. And so what kinds of things should be considered miracles? You guys took a few moments uh, earlier and just kind of named as many miracles as you could. Here are some of the miracles that we see in Scripture, all right? So obviously you have the resurrection and you have the multiplication of the loaves. By the way, these are the only two miracles that are recorded in all four Gospels, uh, only miracles of Jesus that are recorded in uh, all of the Gospels. Uh, but the resurrection, the multiplication of the loaves, the raising of Lazarus, Notice not the resurrection of Lazarus. Lazarus was not resurrected. He was simply raised. What's the difference between what happened to Lazarus and resurrection? Yeah, Lazarus died again, right? Resurrection is this renewal in which there is no longer death, right? It's this future thing. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Eventually, you and I will be resurrected, but that resurrected body will never die again. But that's not how Lazarus was raised. Lazarus was resuscitated more than anything else, right? He was just simply raised only to die again. So the raising of Lazarus, the various uh, healings, water turning into wine, casting out demons, uh, some of the answers to prayer we would certainly say are miraculous, like when Peter is released from prison or Elijah calls down fire uh, or, uh, you know, a number of other examples. Uh, but the question is, is every answer to prayer miraculous? Is every answer uh, to prayer miraculous? This is where I'd say that our definitions kind of get hazy, where I would say that it's possible that God answers a prayer, and it's not necessarily what we would call miraculous. God is simply answering a prayer. Oftentimes, God answers prayer through other means, right? We've already talked about the fact that God often uses means in doing things, and so as we've been studying uh, the book of Proverbs, we see a lot of the Proverbs are just general truths, Right? Things like, if you study, you'll do well. Right? So when you pray and you ask the Lord to help you on your test that you really studied for, is it a miracle that you did well on the test because you studied well for it? No. But is God still to be praised that you did well for it? Yes. There is this sense in which you can both say it is not miraculous, it's just this common working of God, and yet at the same time I'm going to give Him praise and, uh, and credit uh, for it. And, uh, and so, uh, these are some of the things that could be uh, considered uh, miracles. Um, and the purpose of miracles, uh, there's a number of them. One, to give evidence that God is at work and serve to further ministry. To give evidence that God is at work and serve to further ministry. Think of uh, John chapter 4. Uh, Jesus has talked to this uh, uh, Samaritan woman, and, uh, and after he has miraculously kind of uh, exercised his uh, power to know all of the things that are happening in, uh, in her life. She goes 
uh, to the crowd of her people. And she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be uh, the Christ? So it gives evidence that God is at work and serves to further ministry. Acts chapter 8, 6 through 8. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in, uh, in that city. So there's joy in the city, and they're, they're with one accord paying attention uh, to what is being said by Philip. So uh, one of the purposes of miracles is to give evidence that God is at work and to serve to further uh, the, uh, the prophetic or apostolic uh, ministry. John 3, 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. This is Nicodemus. At this point in the story, it doesn't seem as though Nicodemus is actually a believer. He's kind of a seeker. By the end of the Gospels, we see that uh, it appears as though Nicodemus is uh, now a believer. He's part of the, the crew that goes to get Jesus' body uh, and prepare it for uh, burial. And so whatever signs that Jesus is doing are testifying, and they're used by the Lord to bring Nicodemus to faith, it seems. Acts 9 32 through 35, now as Peter went there and uh, here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda, and there he found uh, a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed, and Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So it's this testimony that gives evidence that God is at work and serves to further uh, the ministry of the gospel. Another reason that uh, for uh, miracles, another purpose, is that it just simply helps those in need. It helps those in need. Think about the blind men who are crying out, Lord, heal my sight. It just simply is an evidence of God's compassion in the world. It's an evidence that God cares, that God is a helper, that He's willing to help uh, His people. Another purpose of, uh, of miracles is to remove impediments or hindrances to ministry. Think of the story of Peter's mother-in-law. And so Peter's mother-in-law, uh, all of the, uh, the disciples are gathered together in Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law is there, and she's sick. And so because she's sick, she can't serve them, and so Jesus heals her. And what's she go and do? She begins to then serve uh, the disciples so that they might be able to uh, be equipped for uh, their mission. So it removes impediments or hindrances to ministry. And then lastly, obviously, to uh, glorify God to glorify God. In John 9, 3, Jesus speaks and says, it was not this, that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so that's the reason that uh, this man was born blind and the reason that Jesus heals this man of his blindness is so that the works of God might be manifest, uh, so that God might be glorified. And, uh, and so this is uh, another purpose of miracles. Now, whenever we talk about miracles, I think one of the things that happens to us is depending upon our background, depending on our context, depending on where we come from, we might have this natural resistance to the idea of miracles. So imagine, if you will, that you grew up in this super charismatic circle, right, where everybody does miracles, right? People are like picking up snakes and having them bite them. They never go to the doctor because they just always believe that God's going to heal no matter what. In fact, there was a, uh, a couple that was just uh, convicted uh, I forget in what states, like Idaho or Washington or something like that in the Northwest, uh, just convicted because they never took their kid to the doctor and their kid died. 
uh, because they just believed, believed, believed that God was going to heal them, even though it was something that common medicine simply would have helped them with. So some of us might have grown up in a context or might uh, have a, a strong reaction to this because we've seen it uh, somewhere. And so whenever we talk about miracles, we're a little suspicious because we think that's what, that's what I mean. Whenever we talk about miracles, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about people that are picking up snakes and those kinds of things. Other of us uh, grew up in a tradition that uh, might have said that miracles no longer happen, and thus we're suspicious uh, about any talk about miracles, but for different reasons. And so what I want to do is I want to I take a moment and talk about one particular perversion of a teaching on miracles, and, uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about miracles today. And, uh, and so one of the, the dangers... As, uh, as we think about miracles uh, today is uh, most of us have at least some sort of familiarity with the prosperity gospel. And the prosperity gospel is a particular theology that has really corrupted uh, the understanding of, uh, of miracles and uh, tends to emphasize. So if you turn on the TV, go to TBN or something like that, you'll find people who are preaching. Uh, they might not even be preaching Christ. They might just be preaching miracles. Uh, they might just be preaching these mighty works of God or something like that. And so let me talk about uh, a few of the particular dangers that you might encounter with the prosperity gospel that are going to kind of, uh, I think, maybe create some residue that might make us resistant to the idea of miracles uh, today. So what are some of the dangers of the prosperity gospel uh, in their emphasis on miracles? Uh, I have five, I think, uh, or four. First one is an over-realized eschatology. What do I mean by that? What's eschatology? The doctrine of the end times, right? Overrealized eschatology is this. There are certain things that God has promised that He's going to do in the end times that He hasn't done today, right? There are certain things for tomorrow that God hasn't done today. There are certain things that He's promised that He's going to do that He hasn't done yet. Right? We live in this kingdom that is already but not yet. And it's that not yet that's really important for us to hold on to. And what the, uh, what the prosperity gospel is going to do is they're going to take the not yet and they're going to pull it into the already. They're going to take the future and pull it into uh, the now. That's a problem with the prosperity gospel. So they're going to say uh, that uh, because God has promised there's going to be uh, healing, uh, there, that uh, therefore if you have any sort of illness or affliction uh, today, that you are absolutely guaranteed healing. The problem with that is that there is a not yet aspect of the gospel. So when I'm praying for healing, for instance, I will often say these words. I'll often say, God, you have promised for us absolute and perfect and complete healing. And one day we'll know the foretaste of that. We'll know the fullness of that. We pray even now for a foretaste. We pray even now for just a little sliver, a little hint of that not yet. We pray for that uh, to be now. But what the prosperity gospel does is it gonna, it's going to pull way too much from the future into the present. Another thing that it's going to do is it's going to make absolute what's not absolute. So one of the things that you'll often see in prosperity gospel context uh, is kind of saying anyone can work miracles. Uh, anyone can do these miraculous things. They'll say anyone can speak in tongues. We'll talk about spiritual gifts, by the way, uh, in a couple of semesters. But anyone can speak in tongues. Anyone can be all of these sorts of things. That's not the way the Bible speaks, though. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 29 through 30, it says, Are all apostles? Are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? Those are rhetorical questions. The answer obviously is no. 
God distributes His gifts as He pleases, which is one of the, uh, the, the next dangers of the prosperity gospel is that it downplays the, roles of, the role of the Spirit, that He sovereignly determines uh, when He's going to move and how He's going to move. That's not up to us. We can't simply say, I'm going to work a miracle whenever I want. Even the apostles don't seem to walk in that power. Right? Paul himself, he has this thorn in the flesh. It's not ever removed from him, it doesn't seem. Apostles die, right? So they're not promised that they are uh, somehow because they are uh, full of faith and they are anointed by the Lord, they're not promised this uh, perfectly uh, free life, uh, a life perfectly free from uh, any of the, uh, the effects of the fall or anything like that. Another uh, down, uh, downfall of the prosperity gospel as it relates to miracles is that oftentimes they're done for uh, financial profit. Acts 8 talks about that. Simon, uh, the magician, tries to, to uh, purchase the ability to work miracles and that kind of stuff. It's kind of the same thing as in Second uh, Kings chapter 5, if you remember the story. Naaman uh, has come from a faraway land. He has come to be cleansed. He is cleansed by uh, bathing in the river. Uh, his leprosy is, uh, is cleansed miraculously, and, uh, and he tries to offer money to Elisha, and uh, Elisha says, no, I don't want it. And then his servant later goes on and uh, deceives uh, Elisha and goes and says, I will actually take money. I'll take money for doing this, and, and, uh, and he is condemned. He actually uh, is then uh, afflicted by leprosy for his rule. So these are a few of the, the, the aspects, the, kind of the residue of the prosperity gospel that might make us sort of hesitant or reticent whenever we talk about uh, miracles uh, today. So I think what we, can, we should do is as we talk about miracles, we need to recognize this is a, uh, an end of the p- uh, pendulum or an end of the spectrum that we're not talking about this uh, sort of prosperity gospel idea. And so, our miracles for uh, today, here's what's really important for us to recognize. There's no text in Scripture, there's no text in Scripture that would suggest, that would explicitly say or even implicitly say that miracles have ceased. In fact, there are a few verses that seem to suggest an ongoing possibility uh, of miracles. Galatians 3, 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? 1 Corinthians 12, 28, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 11, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He will. So there's no evidence in Scripture that miracles uh, have ceased. And, uh, and so I think that we should uh, have a, a posture of our heart of expectation expectation that God is not going to just simply work through the natural order, but God is even free, even today, to work in an atypical, uncommon, less common, extraordinary way to uh, rewind or to fast forward the laws of nature uh, in such a way as to glorify Himself and to help us. So why then don't we uh, see miracles today? Some of the objections that people give uh, is that uh, maybe miracles are something that were only done among the apostles, the apostles and the prophets. 
Uh, and so we talked about before, there is certainly this larger collection of uh, miracles around the uh, apostles. There's this cluster, uh, but we might expect there to be this cluster around the apostles uh, for a few of the reasons. First of all, all of our historical books are going to revolve around the apostles. In fact, uh, the, the book of Acts, uh, what does the word Acts refer to there? Does anybody remember? It's either Acts of the Apostles or Acts of the Holy Spirit, all right? And so different uh, transla- or tra- traditions uh, have kind of subtitled that book uh, in different ways, Acts of the Apostles or Acts of the Holy Spirit. But all of our historical books are written from the perspective uh, of the apostles, and so we would expect them only recording basically their experiences. They're not recording the experiences of the you know, common Joe Blow out there because that's not who's writing uh, the book. Uh, and uh, like we talked about, God tends to center these miracles around particular uh, epics or uh, times or events in redemptive uh, history. Some say that miracles always accredit a prophet or an apostle, but you might say that the flood in Noah's time is a miracle, and yet is the primary purpose of that to attest the fact that Noah is a prophet? No, because no one's getting that message. What's the primary point of that? God is simply judging the world. So although there is oftentimes an aspect of a miracle that it does attest to uh, some sort of apostolic or prophetic gifting, that's not always what's happening uh, within uh, this, uh, the Scripture. Miracles are, uh, are done not only by the twelve, but by the seventy-two that Jesus sends out. They're casting out demons. They're healing people in Luke 10 and Matthew 10. In the larger context, the New Testament's clear that miracles were worked by others, such as Stephen, uh, Christians in the church in Galatia, those with gifts of miracles that mentioned in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, thus, miracles uh, cannot simply be called the sign only of the apostles. And so we shouldn't say that miracles died whenever the apostles died because miracles were never only linked to the apostles. They cluster around the apostles. Uh, they're more common around the apostles, but that doesn't mean that that's the only place Uh, where they happen. Another objection that people uh, tend to have to the idea of miracles today is that it would be a form of new revelation. And we we talked about the fact that miracles do bear witness to revelation, but I think what a miracle would do today is not that it bears witness to new revelation, it bears witness to existing revelation. It bears witness to the validity of the Scripture. It bears witness to the validity of the apostolic message which we have today. And the last objection is that they aren't common, right? One of the objections uh, that I've read is that uh, there are no miracles today because we don't see them. They aren't common. And in response, I would say they weren't common in the Bible either. That's part of the point uh, of them, is that they are uncommon. If they were common, they wouldn't be miracles. They wouldn't be uh, anything that we would marvel at, that we would be astounded by. That's what makes them uh, less common and extraordinary. And, uh, And so miracles are possible, I think, because God exists and He's still working in uh, the world, uh, but that doesn't mean that they are uh, probable, um, just that they are possible. So why don't we see miracles uh, today? Why don't we see miracles uh, today might be a question that's on your mind. Well, if you're an atheist or a naturalist, that's easy. Miracles don't exist today because miracles are impossible. Uh, some people would say miracles have ceased. Uh, that's one of the answers that people give. Uh, if you're a member of the prosperity gospel, you would say that you don't see miracles today because you don't have enough faith. So it's your fault that you don't see miracles. Uh, I think that the biblical response, though, 
Uh, if you're asking the question, why don't we see miracles today, is much more uh, complex. Uh, part of it is simply we don't know. We don't know, and we can't say uh, definitively. I think one of the things that we should ask, if you're asking the question, why don't we see miracles today, I think one of the questions that you should ask is you should question your presupposition that you're bringing in. That is, who's the we? Who's the we that we're talking about? Because if you're a Christian who has grown up in the Middle East, if you're a Christian who's grown up in Africa, you very well might have seen miracles. There are a number of stories of these really miraculous healings and those kinds of things uh, that come to us from some of the front lines of the missionary uh, work. And so the fact that you, as an individual, haven't seen something doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, obviously. So that's the first thing I would say uh, to the question of why don't we see miracles is really what you're asking is why don't you as an individual, uh, and that's a much more complex uh, question. I think another reason that we might not see miracles is because we don't ask. We don't expect them and thus don't ask. How often have you been around someone with some sort of a terminal disease maybe, and all that you've prayed for them, all that you asked for them is just comfort or encouragement rather than healing? Do you actually ask for that? Like when you're around somebody who has terminal cancer, do you think because the doctor has said they have three years, that's all they have? Like have you taken that has been kind of the Word of God? If you're not asking for it, why would you expect it? You don't have because you don't uh, ask. I think that's one of the reasons. Another reason that we might not see them is because we don't recognize them. We don't recognize them. Jesus obviously performed all of these miracles and yet, a number of them that he performed were simply glossed over by the people that were around him. They don't notice them. They don't see them. But a primary purpose of miracles is to bear witness to the revelation of God. So are we looking for them? Are our eyes opened? Are our ears attuned to what God is doing uh, in the world? Um, another reason, even in the Bible, again, they seem clustered and not sporadic. Uh, they occur in sort of these, uh, again, clusters we see a lot around Moses, Elijah, Jesus, and the work of the other apostles. They're never ubiquitous or uh, common. And, uh, and then a last one uh, that I think is really important for us as we close is even if not, let's say even if you never see anything that you would definitively say is a miracle, I think biblically what we have to confess, though, is that you're seeing God working regardless. Every time you see the sun rise, every time you see the sun set, every time you see someone healed, whether it was quote-unquote miraculous or not. Every time you see someone saved, turn from their sin and repentance and faith, every time you see these things, you're seeing miracles, or you're seeing at least the, the providential working of God uh, within the world. So regardless of whether you see something that you actually classify as a miracle or not, you're seeing God working because God is always working actively among His, uh, His creation. He's providing bread to eat and water to drink. He's daily sustaining uh, the universe, and for that, we should bless and praise Him. So let's pray, and then we'll stick around a little bit for uh, any questions you may have. Again, if you're, uh, we say this every week, but just as a reminder, um, so services start at uh, 1030, but uh, if you have kids uh, in elementary school, uh, you can uh, go pick them up at 1015. So if you would just kind of linger a little bit to allow the, the teachers time to, uh, to finish up their lessons with the kids. And, uh, and then if you are going to be serving with, uh, with preschool during the 1030 hour, if you would go ahead and take uh, the time while I'm praying, if that, that would be a good transition time for you to go ahead and, uh, and head over to, uh, to preschool. So let's pray. Father, thank you for 
uh, your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you that you are a God who is actively involved in creation, that, uh, that you're not just simply intervening um, on, uh, on occasion, Lord, that uh, it's not simply that you sometimes do something for a change, that you're always doing something. You're always doing uh, 50 trillion things at once. And so we're grateful for your providence, but we're also grateful that sometimes uh, you work in uncommon, extraordinary ways. Sometimes you do grant miraculous healing. Sometimes you do raise the dead. Sometimes uh, you do all of these sorts of things, and they bear witness to your glory and your goodness, that you're not chained by the processes that you have created and you sustain. And so I pray that you'd give us uh, hearts that might be uh, eager to see uh, not only the miraculous, but also just the providence, and to give you all the glory uh, and, uh, and praise for it, Lord. So I pray as we go forth from here that you would incline our hearts uh, to your word, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word, unite our hearts to fear your name, and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love. We pray these things because you're a good father, and you give good gifts, so we ask in Jesus' name, amen.